0: City Road podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people.
1: I talk about decolonising the system a lot, and I suppose there's language now about indigenising the system, which is another kind of reference or turning that on its head. But um, when I talk about decolonising the system, one of the things that I love to, to say is that, you know, it... It's about decolonizing your mind and what you've both just shared is that journey of kind of, you know, understanding the kind of colonial bias and framework that we come with.
2: Hello, everyone. I am Turan Al-Zadeh, an Associate Professor of Urbanism and Infrastructure at the Sydney School of Architecture, Design and Planning. With me, we have... Ellie Davidson, an Aboriginal Planner, Dr. Rebecca Clements, and Dallas Rogers. We are here today to talk about planning and infrastructure governance on unceded First Nation land. I'll hand over to Dallas.
0: Uh, You've been working through the incubator project on a case study, and that case study is the Western Parkland City. Why did you choose that case study? Rebecca.
3: So this was uh, this case study was chosen after discussions with our advisory board. We've got an advisory board that has a whole range of professionals from planning and infrastructure organisations, academic experts, etc. And this was a very compelling case study because it's a massive project, very complex, and it involves both greenfield development and uh, growth around the existing centres in this area. On top of that, for this particular question, Western Sydney has the largest Aboriginal population. There are a lot of diverse, different Aboriginal groups and and communities in this area. There are several local Aboriginal land councils. Uh, There are several different uh, traditional custodian group so there's a lot of complexity here to think about and this is all happening in an infrastructure project that's still in its early stages so we're able to kind of look at that early stage of decision making and how a lot of these uh, new novel governance forms that are coming in like the city deal are sort of dealing with this complexity.
0: What's it like being working on this project Taran?
3: It's been a humbling
2: experience a very steep learning curve for me personally i've been really lucky because of the people and the connections that we managed to learn but at the same time there was a lot of unlearning involved that went beyond what i had expected at the beginning perhaps the biggest learning that i had that goes beyond this project, but this project played a very significant role about that, was the fact that I started thinking about how different systems of governance can exist in difference and in equality with respect. I've started thinking about how we can have a mature and secure enough governance system that allows for other set of values and other ways of thinking and knowing to coexist. If we are serious about sustainable coexisting, we need to think about governance structure that allows for more than one way of governing to coexist.
0: Ellie, what's it been like for you to work in this project?
1: Uh, I think one of the things that I've definitely taken out of it is Right at the start of the research project when I suppose everything was coming to to form up, this idea of uh, everything happening on the unceded lands of First Nations people, I mean, I was like, well, that's great, but like, what are we going to do with that and, and how is that going to unfold? And I think it's been really amazing to be part of the advisory board and see, yeah, I suppose like how supportive people are, how I suppose engaged they are, have been in conversations and bringing different um, perspectives to that particular question. But I suppose that being at the forefront of this research has been a really amazing kind of reflection for me as well as um, hearing from a lot of different people. I've really enjoyed uh, the times that we got together as a board and, and hearing from different people in the context of how they've been involved in the Western Parkland City and other projects and trying to grapple with this really complex issue of what happens within governance and infrastructure and how do we resolve some of these challenges because, you know, none of them are simple and I think putting forward the city deal and some of the things that came out of that, like I'm actually, um, my understanding is that a lot of the work that's happening within the context of the Aerotropolis and the precinct planning kind of came out of some people advocating at the city deal um, level to, to be considering country and community and culture. And so, yeah, I suppose just having that opportunity to hear reflections of people who've been working in this space for a long time, but also always feeling a lot of support and engagement when it comes came to a conversation about First Nations people and uh, sovereignty and and the complexity of what that means to infrastructure projects. Rebecca?
3: Yeah, when we started this project, we definitely, you know, had some big ideas about taking on this focus, but, you know, a lot of us, um, you know, including myself, you know, were coming into it with a lot of sort of simplistic and naive ideas, so it's definitely been a very humbling process and I feel very grateful that we've been able to learn from you know so many different perspectives that have been you know living in uh, this experience uh, including you know uh, the you know generous and patient insights that Ellie has given the project but also all of our interviewees Um, so every everyone that we've spoken to has has kind of shattered assumptions that we've had they've uh, I might have expected people would sort of say you know this or that and they've often you know, kind of really brought to light a lot of issues and, um, and challenges and uh, ways of thinking that I, I hadn't considered at all. And I, I think, if nothing else, that's kind of representative of the sorts of new insights and ways of thinking that we can get through opening up these governance processes to questions, even if we don't necessarily know where they're going, like listening to the experiences of people you know their hopes, their histories, et etc, and being more open to creating more flexibility in the system and being open to making changes even when they're challenging even when they're uncomfortable there's so much great opportunity that can come from embracing these opportunities, and I think if we can find more ways of doing that, we can at least really get to somewhere a lot more productive and a lot more yeah a lot more sustainable, a lot more equitable, et cetera.
1: So, um, I suppose, just in response to that, um you know a lot of I talk about decolonizing the system a lot, and I suppose there's language now about indigenizing the system, which is another kind of reference or turning that on its head. but um, when I talk about decolonizing the system, one of the things that i love to to say is that you know it it's about decolonizing your mind, and what you've both just shared is that journey of kind of you know understanding the kind of colonial bias and framework that we come with. And, you know, I think a really important first step for anybody who wants to engage in this space is about understanding their own cultural framework and where they come from and that they have a cultural framework. A lot of people don't even think about that because they just think what I do is normal and, you know, everybody else, this is just how things are done. And so they're not open to hearing and learning and listening and actually taking in that there are different ways of doing things. And it's not about othering them. It's about accepting and actually being open to learn and then I you know talk about decolonizing your practice so doing what you can with what you've learned and that kind of personal journey that you've been on and what you can do in your area of influence so bring this question to the forefront of your research and what and, and make sure that it's embedded into all of the conversations, you know, that's the, that's the opportunity that you both had in your practice. And then collectively we decolonize the system because it's not something that's going to change overnight. And it's actually only ever going to be led by individuals going on that journey, doing what they can do and asking these questions. And then, you know, I don't think that any of us have solutions, you know, we're not really, I don't think in that space where we have a lot of solutions, people think ideas about what could happen but you know i suppose we're all just opening up we're opening up and we're starting to apply it to practice and we're starting to build that confidence and you know i think it's just all part of you know us working together collectively to decolonize the system because that's the only way we're going to get there
0: that's uh really powerful. And I was thinking about designing with country and then how important a document like that becomes, because it might create space for having these conversations and for putting things like country first. Is is that how those tools, policy tools are designed?
1: Yeah, I think that it's about inviting people to a new way of doing and being and thinking and practice, you know, like at the end of the day, we have built a lot of what we do in a in a Western sense around Western ways. So, you know, the way that we project plan, the way that we do budgets, the way that we engage, the way that we think about things is all kind of framed in this kind of imported way of, you know, making decisions and doing business and, and I suppose carrying out what it is that we, you know, want to see into our future. And I think that all of these kind of policies and legislations, you know, it's it's interesting because I think about writing a chapter in a DCP. Is that decolonizing a system or is that indigenizing a system? I kind of think that it's both because we have to harness tools like a development control plan to get what we want to get done, you know, and what we and to achieve what we want to achieve. So it is about harnessing the structures that we have, but within that, you know, within what we've done with. Um, the the DCP and the guidelines is requiring for traditional custodians to be uh, engaged and not only to be engaged, but we've also set up a recognised country template, which requires a proponent to summarise what it is that they spoke about with the traditional custodians and people they engaged with and get kind of a sign off from them. Not to say that I agree that this development should go forward, but to agree that this is an accurate reflection of our conversations. And, you know, it's a way that I suppose we're trying to shift some of those power imbalances and make sure that Um, I suppose an assessment process isn't always through the lens of the proponent, of the developer, of the person who probably has ties to politicians and to, you know, the complexity of what the development industry looks like. You know, it might just seem like a small thing, but having that template in there and requiring uh, a proponent to actually, you know, come with some form of acknowledgement that the voices of traditional custodians have been heard in their processes is all parts of those steps towards helping to, I suppose, respond to everything that this research is is trying to cover and those power imbalances. And, um, you know, I, I think that we have to capitalise and harness Um, the tools that we have at the moment, because at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to be throwing out all of our planning laws and legislations anytime soon. So we have to work within the structures that we have. And so I think that this space is about going, okay, well, what can we do? How can we change our processes and embed different ways of approaching them so that we can put country first and think about what is here and what needs to be enhanced and protected and preserved for future generations? You know, I think about for us as Aboriginal people like a core value for us is you know intergenerational thinking you know we we think seven generations behind and seven generations in front and so we are conscious that if we don't make the right decisions now then we lose what's there for not only our generation but generations to come so you know trying to bring some of those ethos and values into the planning and development space I think is really what Um, you know, these new frameworks are trying to achieve.
0: So let's uh, talk a little bit more about this case within that context of this being Aboriginal land, with this being a place of diverse Aboriginal communities. What is being done in terms of planning for country and, and First Nations voices in this project?
2: If anything, we screened uh, quite a number of case studies in conversation with our advisory board. And at the end of the day, we decided that this was a case that is um, a game changer for New South Wales, but also has the eyes of nation over it, or at least the infrastructure profession and discipline across the nation have an eye on this as a trendsetter. The diverse First Nation communities that reside in this location are also a representation of some of the settler colonial decisions. Many of them are in this position because of the earlier forced resettlement program that was introduced by Australian governments of the time. So there is a lot in terms of settler colonial legacies that this case can help us to unpack. Uh, There are a number of positive steps taken in this um, area. And that's part of the reason that we are very grateful for Ellie to join us, because Ellie, um, uh, indeed, um, led uh, uh, an award-winning guideline, um, uh, recognized country guideline, that is relevant to this case. But in addition to that award-winning Indigenous-led guideline, we also have a number of Indigenous um, roles that were defined as part of the governance of these uh, massive uh, project. Uh, we also have uh, advisory boards, and I completely agree with uh, Ellie's earlier point about advisory not being equivalent with decision-making or power. Uh, we also have um, uh, a few... Um, Indigenous-led design projects that are part of uh, the massive development happening in this area. So there's quite a lot of uh, positive steps taken.
0: Ellie, you've been working out in Western Sydney on multiple projects, uh, this one and the Aerotropolis. Can you tell me a little bit about the work you've been doing in Western Sydney?
1: Yeah, sure. Um I was certainly happy when we decided to go with this as a case study because I've been working across the Western Parkland City for a number of years now. I've worked across a number of the different growth areas that uh, have been identified by the state government. So uh, in the north, the Greater Penrith Eastern Creek, um, sort of in the central area, the Aerotropolis Precinct Planning, then the southwest growth area, the Greater MacArthur growth area and the Wilton growth area. So I suppose all the way from Penrith to Picton, uh, I've been doing a lot of work, uh, I suppose, helping to bridge the gap between the First Nations community and the change that's occurring which is rapid and you know it's it's quite challenging i think to communicate and take people on that journey. I think particularly uh, it's it's relatively traumatizing. So it's a pretty big task to, uh, I suppose, carry and wait to hold because I think that, you know, a lot of the time when you're in engagement and in planning, like you go to these type of meetings and engagement and it's like, you know, you use the word progress. I remember being out on country with one of the aunties or a group of people and one of the aunties said to me, you know, she called me out in front of a group of people, including my clients, a very humbling experience, and said, you know, we don't use that word when we talk about what's happening out here. We don't use the word progress. We, we see this as destruction. This is destruction of our country, and we don't have the right to say anything about what should or shouldn't happen here. Like we're grateful that we're here. We're grateful that we have an opportunity to provide input to what's happening. We have a voice that we didn't have before, but that voice doesn't go as far as saying that we shouldn't be digging up this country and we shouldn't be putting in this amount of infrastructure and development. So it's a pretty uh, tricky space, I think, to to walk and a pretty tough line to walk. But, you know, I feel very grateful that, um, I suppose, complemented by the Connecting with Country framework from the government architects, I've been fortunate enough to help, I suppose, apply the principles in that framework to planning. Uh, I think that framework needs to apply way before design because if we don't know what... Areas of country are important. If we don't, we haven't identified um, particular significant places within country. Then we might be building in places that we really shouldn't be building, and you know, um, impacting on country that we really, you know, could avoid if we thought about it much earlier in the piece. So I suppose my work has really been about um, bringing my planning qualifications, experience and my engagement skill set in empowering First Nations voices in the face of change and hoping to make sure that country is protected, that um, community is heard and that culture is restored and considered. And, you know, one of the the early projects that I worked on was for the Western Sydney Aerotropolis precinct planning. And we started that work at the beginning of COVID pretty much. So nobody knew how to use Teams or Zoom and we're trying to get the aunties on there. And it was, it was pretty wild times, but you know, we were really fortunate to um, have, you know, over a hundred people engage with us on that project. And what we heard was that people want to see country and culture represented in the built environment. They want to see country protected. They want to see themselves in those places, not just through artwork, but through places that they can connect with and that they can be on country and practice culture and see themselves represented through language and naming and economic opportunities and so it was this really broad conversation which then sort of led to okay well how do we practically make that happen within the context of planning and legislation and so I'm um, really fortunate to have worked on a number of projects trying to realize what the communities kind of told us but I think the Recognised Country Guidelines for me has been really a career-defining piece of work because it's really solidified what community is saying and made it real for planners to think about in the consideration of how those aspirations should be applied within a development control plan. So I suppose in working on that project and with our client, we always thought that that would be something that would be shared beyond just this project and, um, you know, those, those requirements in the DCP and the associated guidelines can really be applied to, to any project. So really um, fortunate to be on this journey and, and it's been built on what we've been hearing from community and particularly traditional custodians.
0: It's really fascinating and I guess I'd like to hear what, like a week in the life of Ellie. Like what does your sort of week look like? What are the types of spaces that you move through doing this work which I imagine goes from being on country and, and to all the way to being, you know, in a boardroom somewhere or in the Department of Planning in a on a different type of country?
1: Mm. Yeah, it's... um. My diary is pretty crazy. (laughs) I'm all over the place. I feel like I live half of my time out of my suitcase because I live in the Northern Rivers on Bundjalung Country. But I feel like a particular connection to, to to this country and particularly to Darug and Darawal Country. Interesting, like we're talking about the you know settler colonial relationship i'm actually a descendant of captain william bligh and you know he was given quite a few land grants out in the western parkland city and so there's this really interesting kind of pull that i think my own heritage and story draws me to and so i'm i'm out in western sydney probably a couple of times a month i come down and do work we walk country where um, I suppose, sitting down and having a cup of tea with a lot of um, elders and traditional custodians. Um, and then I suppose like what I see my role in being is like translating what I hear in those contexts into whatever space I can. So being on podcasts like this, you know, being on the new Greater Cities Commission First Nations advisory panel, taking it to into the training environment. So we also have a training offering and the lessons that I learn and the things that I hear about terms terms of what First Nations people on the ground are experiencing, I elevate into whatever space and platform I can. So do a lot of work with the Department of Planning. And um, yeah, I just feel very fortunate that I have the opportunity to have a voice and be able to not take away or disempower the voice of the people that I work with and have a personal relationship with, but ensure that their voices are heard in spaces that they don't occupy and make sure that their concerns and aspirations are elevated in spaces that they might not be. So it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about teaching here at the uni. I know when I was doing my planning degree, we didn't have anybody talking about these type of things and we didn't have anyone considering that we work on the unceded lands of First Nations people. And so I'm very grateful to be you know in the space that I am right now with the experience that I have and the opportunities that I have but you know I suppose for me I'm like very much motivated about being a voice for the voiceless and having that opportunity to sit down and listen and learn and translate what I hear into the platforms that I get to speak into
0: mm. What are some of the big challenges in the work you do? What are the challenges you face sort of day-to-day dealing in this very complex institutional and cross-cultural landscape?
1: I'd say probably one of the biggest issues and challenges that I find particularly in the Western Parkland City is that First Nations people or the traditional custodians of that country, um, you know, Darug and Darrawal people, are not represented in legislation. They have no legislated voice for country, so they don't have to be engaged with. There's no requirement for government or other stakeholders to work specifically with them. And so, uh, unfortunately, the people who have that ancestral connection to place, to country, and that knowledge of the things that we want to sit down and talk about, their voices aren't being elevated. They don't have a legislated leg to stand on really. And so I think that even outside of the things that we're talking about within um, this research, which obviously has touched on this issue, you know, a, a really big challenge is making sure that we find a way to, and particularly in New South Wales, because the Land Rights Act has been set up and it, you know, has, uh, established local Aboriginal land councils, but there's no requirement for those land councils to have people who are from that country, traditional custodians to be in their governance, to be working for the organization, to be members of that organization. And so it's a really big gap and probably one of the things that I find most challenging. And, you know, you think about the context of Sydney, it's the first point of contact. It's, you know, the place where, you know, um, I suppose it has had the longest impact in terms of trying to figure out our kind of settler colonial relations. At the same time, you know, I think a lot of people say that it's um, fortunate in some ways because there's been a lot of things that have been documented but we can't just rely on those documented you know archival records because some of them are contradictory. Some of the methodologies around how those things are pulled together isn't necessarily as strong as it could or should be. So, I think that that dynamic of things like who gets to speak for country, the establishment of you know voices. For from traditional custodians um, within the Western Parkland city context is probably one of the biggest challenges that I face.
0: I'd like to ask you about the naming of the site but also the the structural dynamics. I mean, so- how long
1: do you have? <laughs> <laughs> we could be here for a while. Uh, I think just like, you know, when we talk about the structure and how that whole kind of name came about and my understanding of it, you know, I think that there was like a, a public... Um competition for people to name um, that particular area, and you know I think that even casting my mind back to that opportunity, there was no reference really to country it was all about you know people who helped to shape New South Wales and you know if you you would have expected that type of tone and that type of approach you know five ten years ago, but it was kind of a little jarring in. context of what's been happening and all of the things that we've been talking about here and the work that's happening in Western Sydney, because, you know, that silence of country, that silence of First Nations people, I do remember a a small reference to culture, but it was not within a First Nations context. I think that in itself and that call out what people were seeking in terms of naming suggestions. uh, And then, you know, once those N- names got put into that pool. It was then taken up to a small group of people, a small panel. You know, politicians were involved and there was not a black fella in sight. And, you know, I think that we can definitely do better. You know, there is um, a better approach to thinking about things like this. And if I cast my mind back to that 2020 engagement where we were all working online in COVID, uh, one of the first things that came up was place naming in language. And, you know, for us as First Nations people, we don't actually name places after people. So the context of it being named after an old white dude is like, you know, has layers. Um, but, you know, for us, we, we name about we name places based on the quality of that place, what it's known by. So, you know, this place is located so close to Wainamata, you know, Mother's Water Place and this really important complex system of water in that country. And, you know, I just think that there's so many lessons that we can learn from that um, process. And, and also I think that the, the response and the, the community outcry has been quite astounding I think to me it's um you know uh, it's it's quietening down a little bit now because it's been a little while but I think at the time the amount of conversations that we were having um you know was was daily and weekly, and people were really shocked by that um, choice and decision, and just thought it was quite backward. So you know, uh, I feel like we've definitely learned a lot. Um, and I suppose one of the things that I'm really mindful about is you know all the things that we're talking about here. it comes down to governance. it comes down to politics, and you know people not wanting to you know back down on things that they've put out there, even if they do have to acknowledge that they're wrong like i just think we need a bit more humility when we make mistakes and i feel like i'm actually not sure whether that name has been fully gazetted by the geographical names board i know that um you know the process had gone through it had been submitted but you know in doing a bit of research into it uh, i don't believe that it actually complies with the liverpool city council's naming policy so really if it does go ahead and i uh, you know, I feel like it's a very slim chance that anyone's going to go back on it now, but, you know, it's actually breaking policy to do something because of a process that was probably in my humble opinion, quite flawed. Um, So, you know, I think that it's just the context of what we're working within and the colonial power structures that we were talking about earlier at play um, in a really important decision that, you know, when people think about Australia's newest city and all of the taglines that it has like do we want people landing in you know a new international airport and going to a place called Bradfield I mean what does that say about us as a country so I'll leave it there because I could just keep yawning. (laughs)